I'm April West. And I'm Katherine Sigblad. We're both first-time moms who are passionate about following our intuition and not afraid to do things differently. To say we question everything is an understatement. If you find yourself analyzing ingredient labels, searching for holistic alternatives to pharmaceuticals and routine practices, and you're curious about all things baby wearing, bed sharing, and postpartum, you will feel right at home here. In this podcast, we fearlessly confront the pregnancy, birth, and postpartum industries, share our mom hacks, and never stop challenging the status quo. We simplify the approach to motherhood and trust in nature. We are moms off the record. Welcome to another episode of Moms Off the Record. We are on episode five, and today's episode will probably be rather controversial to most of the audience. We're going to talk about the childhood vaccine schedule. And because today's episode is so detailed and so thorough, we're actually going to make this into a two-part series, but we've also provided timestamps to help you navigate and a direct link to all of the sources that we are referencing today. We'll talk about the funding behind the studies that our pediatricians are leaning on. We're going to get into some examples of the two biggest immunizations on the schedule. We'll talk about immunity and what that means. We'll talk about some vaccine facts so you know that they're all not created equal. And then we're going to end on some resources for moms in the future. So whether you choose to vaccinate your child or not, we'll talk about informed consent, questions to ask your pediatrician, resources to draw upon if you want to find vaccine-friendly pediatricians. If you need to apply for exemptions, we'll do a brief stint on that. We'll talk about homeopathy as an alternative to the vaccines. We have a lot to cover, so we're going to get right into it. And don't worry, everyone, we're not sitting here with our tinfoil hats. Um, We do cite our sources from actual renowned experts who are doctors and researchers. So we are simply the conveyors of free information that has already been verified, which you too can find yourself And we'll show you an example of what that looks like. But before we really get into the vaccines, April, why don't we go over one of our most important disclaimers here, which is let this not be an issue that divides people into groups of good versus evil, anti-vax versus pro-vax. We know with pretty much every controversial subject in this country that there's so many areas of gray, there's so much nuance. So it is not about being an anti-vaxxer. Can we get rid of that term? It is about being pro-informed consent. It is about being pro-bodily autonomy and really just pro-being curious and asking questions. Critical thinking. Critical Mm -hmm. thinking. So we we just want to say up front, this is not a political issue. It's not about red versus blue, right wing versus left wing. And it's also not a religious issue. Also, The loudest voices in the room are not necessarily the majority. And oftentimes on these controversial subjects, there's many moderate thinking people who are somewhere in the middle, right? And there's also many people who feel exactly the way we do, who have been shamed into silence and ostracized, especially on social media where there's so much censorship. So if you are thinking to yourself like, wow, I want to find a community of moms or parents who thinks just like we do and is skeptical and ask questions, there are huge communities out there. There probably are just more under the radar than you imagine. 
Exactly. No matter where we sit on this topic, all of us have one thing in common, which is we're trying to do the best thing for our children and protect them. So Kat, let's talk about where you stand, because I can't imagine that you would have considered yourself, quote, an anti-vaxxer as you were growing up, up until a certain point. So let's walk through why why you feel skeptical of the vaccines for children. I think I've had a few wake-up calls and aha moments, as I'm sure you did too. And as I mentioned in our very first episode ever, the birth control episode, I think that the way birth control is prescribed and that lack of informed consent, the way the flu shot is pushed, despite us knowing that the flu is generally you're going to get over it, obviously, unless you're extremely immune compromised, right? Or you're very elderly. And then also the HPV shot, personally knowing, I know a handful of women who have been vaccine injured from the Mm -hmm. HPV shot and how that's just very casually swept under the rug and you're not allowed to talk about it. But um, Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. Just my background is, you know, I come from a medical background, meaning my mom was an RN for 19 years, including a pediatric RN before mm-hmm. she had a career change in her mid-30s. My dad is a surgeon. Um, so very traditional medical background where, you know, you you generally speaking do as you're told, like what the doctor recommends. However, my mom, as, as I alluded to also, she's the one who pointed out to me like, no, we're not going to be doing the flu shot despite the school nurse, you know, going around pushing that. No, we're not going to be do- doing the HPV shot. That's not necessary. She taught me how to look at actual risks benefits, pros and cons, but I want to share something that a lot of people who are newer in my life probably don't know about me. Um, It's something that I've shared with you and family and my husband, but a lot of people don't know this, which is, it's probably going to surprise a lot of people who recently met me. Mm -hmm. I actually did get two rounds of the COVID shot. I got my first shot in April of 2021, my second shot in May of 2021. I got it for a reason I'm not proud of, but I feel like it's important to speak about it because I'm sure there's others like me. It was Mm -hmm. under some coercion, but it wasn't because I was going to lose my job. There was no threats or anything. I actually was eligible for the Birthright Israel program. You can go to Israel if you're in a certain age group, if at least one of your parents is Jewish and my mom is Jewish. Because this was 2021, the only way I could have gotten there, and I was this was the last year of my eligibility, was if I got the vaccine. I had a ton of fears and doubts and uncertainties beyond belief because I already thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to get this vaccine. But then I was like, well, I want to try to get pregnant. I definitely don't want to get it when I'm pregnant. Let me just like quickly get it and hopefully it'll get out of my system, praying nothing bad will happen to me. Well, wow. lo and behold... I'm someone who's always had a very regular menstrual cycle. I've had perfect periods. We're talking like five to six days bleeds, really very little PMS symptoms, sometimes no PMS symptoms, like almost picture perfect. And immediately after I got actually the first shot, I noticed that my periods dramatically changed. I went from having these five to six day perfect cycles, you know, bright red blood, crimson colored, all the things that any hormone specialist would tell you indicate that you have a healthy menstrual cycle to having one and a half to two day bleeds, which were barely a bleed. We're talking like spotting, sorry, TMI, but like dark, dark brown, dry spotting. And I felt really off. 
And I just think the timing is so funny. If anyone wants to say it's coincidental or I was stressed, it was actually the happiest time of my life. Uh, I had no financial stress, no marital stress, no friendship stress, none of that. I was really happy. I was really excited and looking forward to the future. So I know it's not stress. I didn't change my eating or sleeping habits. There's really only one thing you can attribute it to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember... It's interesting some, that you mentioned yeah. that. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but not no, to ahead. get like too off off script here, but it's interesting that you mentioned that in light of the recent... Pfizer drama with Project Veritas talking about how they knew that there were some issues with fertility. Yes. And reproduction. It's disturbing. It's disappointing, but not surprising because I know I'm not the only one. And women were coming out about this a year and a half ago. And of course, like with anything that is controversial, like if you say there's any negative side effect to any shot, you're gaslit, your concerns are swept Mm -hmm. under the rug. They're diminished, dismissed altogether. You're basically called a conspiracy theorist and you're called crazy. And how dare you not trust the science? So that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I was so proud of myself. I, yes, I was on the childhood schedule, but for nothing extraneous. So anything that was optional, I didn't get. Everything that was mandatory in the early to mid nineties, just to go to school, I did get. Yeah, you know, tetanus. I got polio, right? I didn't get, I never had a flu shot. I never had HPV. I, I don't even know if I had hepatitis B. If it was on the, it was, if it was mandatory, I did, but yes. I was so angry at myself for getting this vaccine for all the wrong reasons. And by the way, I'm not going to name names, but I did have close family who told me not to get, it, especially because they knew I was trying to get pregnant. And by the way, thank goodness I had knowledge about and access to holistic treatments for get, you know, getting your cycle back on track. I had, Mm -hmm. yeah, I had to do fertility acupuncture twice a week, every week for three months. And I was taking organic Olivia on natal nourish and that did get my periods back on track. It took over half a year. This whole time I'm wondering, do I have low fertility? What, what's the problem here? So uh, the re- the reason I go on and on about this is really because um, I want to normalize talking about the negative side effects of this. And I want people to stop gaslighting women when they have these consequences. And by the way, can we also normalize changing our minds about things yes. and like, right? Like, so yes, maybe, you, right? maybe you were pro COVID vaccine and it's okay. And I, by the way, I wasn't, which is why it's even more messed up that I got it. But it's okay to change your mind and it's okay to backtrack and say, you know, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe I was pro the vaccine a little bit too prematurely, or I was under duress or stress or pressure. I commend my friends who didn't get it, who had skepticism and doubt. And I know you were one of them and I commend you. If I could go back in time, I would not have gotten it. I would have just said, you know what? Israel can wait. Israel's been here for thousands of years. It will continue to be here. Yeah, Um, but it's your birthright. So I I mean, if I were in a position like you, I don't, or, you know, for example, my my sister-in-law, she's a, a nurse and her job was on the line. And I can't imagine being in a position where that, you know, for example, where I was working in sales before I qualified for what we call winner circle, which is like a president's club. It's an all expense paid trip, right? I earned that by overperforming for my company. And did you know that I couldn't go to the trip because I wasn't vaccinated? So that was annoying, but that wasn't something that I was going to fold for. But if I, if my job were on the line, who knows? Right. And so that kind of is an interesting little segue into a, a, a little aha moment I had. So two of the books that I will be citing today 
One is called Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide, How to Make Safe, Sensible Decisions About the Risks, Benefits, and Alternatives by uh, Dr. Aviva Ram. Really great book. And then I also have one, The Vaccine Book by Dr. Robert Sears. Both of them have this quote, and I thought this was an aha moment here, by Gandhi, which says, any action that is dictated by fear or coercion of any kind ceases to be moral. So mm-hmm. I'm just sad that we were put in a position where we had to do this. So I don't yeah. know what I would have done had I been up against the wall in that sort of way. So thank you for sharing True. your story. And I think that's a, a reason why some women get into this, right? Because like you, as a, a child of the 90s or late 80s, I was vaccinated against the schedule. Granted, the schedule was very different, which we'll we'll get into here shortly. So I would have never considered myself an anti-vaxxer. And I hate that terminology. Let's let's rephrase that to vaccine critical or yeah. vaccine skeptical. It wasn't until I became pregnant that this even was on my radar. And it was on my radar because of COVID, right? Because I just kind of saw all the weird things happening. I was like, this is strange. I've never seen this kind of reaction to a vaccine before. But anyway, as mothers, we are so conscientious about what we put into our bodies when we're pregnant, what we put into our bodies when we're breastfeeding. So why would that change when we think about our babies? So the reason why I started to get into it also, and I think this is another reason that we shouldn't dismiss is that like you, if you are someone who is vaccine injured or you closely know someone, that's going to inform your experience a little bit. So that will make you maybe open up Pandora's box to see what's in there. So that's what got me on this track. And then once you do the research of these books, once you dig into the history, which we're going to get into heavy here shortly, it all starts to look a little less altruistic mm-hmm. and a little more scary. <laughs> yeah. So, Alarming. Yeah, alarming. Exactly. And before we get into that, there's one thing I wanted to talk about, which you shared with me just yesterday, which is um, the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Yes. We love Dr. Nathan Riley. Dr. Nathan Riley. So the episode was not on vaccines. It was actually on circumcision <laughs> decision. Yeah, which is also controversial. Yes. And. Country. What I liked what he said was before we talk about the medical history or the pros and cons, let's talk about the values. And we'll insert this clip here just so you can hear it directly from him. I don't want to botch it. Before the question of evidence is the question of values. And what are your values as a parent? What are your values as a human being? Do you value autonomy? Do you value the natural order? Do you value the way that your child was born? Do you want to teach them as a parent that they make their own decisions about their body? But it was a really great reminder that with all things, our values should come first. What are we trying to instill in our children? Do we want them to be critical thinkers? Do we want them to be autonomous in their decisions? Or do we want from a very ripe age to indoctrinate them, to make them feel like they have to bend the knee to authority figures and just do something because, just because? Yeah, so. which also, you know, briefly, whenever I think of doing things just because an authority figure tells you to do it, I think of the Milgram experiment. Oh, Does that ring good a bell? Point. Yes. You watched something on the Milgram experiment, yes. right? 
okay, I want to hear I want to hear what you know about Milgram, but there's a very interesting show. It's a I don't know if it's a show, a movie, a live experiment, we'll call it. It's recorded on Netflix, I believe, called Push. And essentially, we're testing to see your level of compliance. So are you so compliant in a situation that you would be bold enough to kill someone under the guise of compliance? It's an incredible movie and you should definitely watch it because at first you're like, of course I would never murder somebody. Of course not. No matter what the social circumstances are. And then you watch these people little by little being tested, baited for compliance. And then you start to see that trust build, build, build. And then boom, a lot of people end up pushing this person off the building, which is the murder. Yeah. It's not and real. It, it's, it's an just, enactment, but. But still, I mean, it, it's not such a, a far stretch really from what the experiment uh, showed in its conclusion it takes a very, very strong personality. If you're really, if you have very strong convictions and you know how to stand your ground and you're not afraid of the consequences, then it, it, you can stand up to authority, but it's very easy, very easy to kowtow, especially with the hierarchy we have, right? Which is doctors know better than we do. The government knows better than we do. Mm. So... Can we talk about that for one second? I know we're like, yeah. we, we're not getting into the meat and potatoes, but you just I keep having these ideas of things I've listened to recently, which is doctors, not to discredit, they have the greatest intentions, I'm sure. They want to do good. They want to help people and they want to make a boatload of money, right? They want to make their parents proud. So they get into this medical arena and they're willing to sacrifice eight, 10, 12 years of study or more, but right. But what we have found in order to pass the test, you just have to know what the examiner wants you to say, how the examiner wants you to answer. So really you've been conditioned for a greater amount of time to comply to what's been told to you, regurgitate what you've learned. Not necessarily have doctors been put in through a system where critical thinking is a number one skill but rather answering the questions to the test just um, based on what you've learned, right? Not to discredit. I I don't want to berate you. And I have girlfriends who have gone through years and years of school and I commend them for that because the amount of information you have to memorize and learn is crazy incredible, but it doesn't really build the critical thinking skill. And I want to add one more thing to that. There are, of course, doctors who are innately great critical thinkers, but in this medical system we have, critical thinking is not necessarily rewarded. In fact, right, right, it can actually be punished in the form of licensure removal, in the form of, well, you're going to be kicked out of our practice if you ask too many questions like that and don't want to follow procedure, right? At so, the expense of your family, but right. this now you're going to lose your livelihood. There's a lot that I I don't envy them one bit. You're right. Yes. I think this would be a good segue, unless you think we're leaving anything out here, but a good segue into the uh, the history of all the times we've witnessed corruption and we've seen when we've gotten it wrong. Sorry, do you want to start with Thalidomai? Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I'm looking at you. You're like, wait, what did you call me? So, okay. So let's get into it. This isn't vaccine necessarily, but this is 
the authority figures, the medical leaders offering things that we now know with time and evidence were horrible decisions. For example, thalidomide. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but this is what used to be prescribed to pregnant women in the 50s and 60s for morning sickness. And it's a sedative. And what happened was the amount of birth defects or stillbirths or terminated early terminated pregnancies due to this drug um, the biggest outcome of this drug was babies are born with defects or they are missing their arms and their legs. And it was an incredible amount of babies born in that time with these issues. And it wasn't until years later that we understood that it was a result of this drug. And now this drug is obviously no longer available. You know, before we go into smoking, which I want you to speak on too, uh, it actually reminds me of like Ozempic because Ozempic is supposed to be for diabetics. However, I know for a fact, certain doctors have been writing prescriptions for their patients just to lose a few pounds. And now yes. we're seeing celebrities are coming out about, you know, the, celebrities with Ozempic face, right? Uh, it, it's kind of like this, it, it's a sad joke and then they need filler for their face. But um, we, we really they get haven't droopy? learned that much. Yes, they, they look like very, very sunken in, you know, kind of like that, Kate Moss 1994 look, but on, on Ozempic. But with Ozempic, they're losing weight rapidly, right? Because now all of a sudden it's trending to be skinny again, right? We had big butts as a trend. Now everyone wants to be skinny. They're looking for that quick pill. So they're taking a diet, a drug for overweight or obese diabetics that so many people in Hollywood have come out about just Google Ozempic. But the, the point is like, yeah, you can't control if someone gets their hands on a drug no, knowing that it's not for them, right? They they can mis, misuse that drug. But the real point is doctors, knowing that it's for overweight diabetic patients, were prescribing this to patients who just wanted to lose some weight. And now there's dire consequences. But let's let's segue into smoking. April, what do you think about smoking? Yeah, so this is something that the CDC now, now knows smoking is so bad, right? And it's been, I think, what's incredible is we're seeing a lot less smoking now, yeah. which I think is great um, because of obvious reasons. But what was interesting is there's an ad from the 40s about Lucky Strike was the brand of cigarette. And it says, I have the ad, we'll share it if we'll figure out a way to share it. But 20,679 physicians say luckies are less irritating. So this is an ad that's talking about how doctors used to say that smoking was okay, especially for pregnant women, and how it came to be. It's a very interesting little uh, story here. Lucky Strikes actually sent over a pack of their cigarettes and a survey to physicians back in the day. And they would say, don't you know that this particular cigarette is less bad for you than the other cigarettes out there? And the <laughs> physicians would say, yeah. And then they extrapolated that data to say that it's the physician's choice of the cigarette, wow. even though we know and knew back then that it caused coughing and throat irritation, but not as bad as the others. 
And this was marketed to the youth and pregnant moms. And I'll also link another uh, resource for you that talks about all the other ads that were going on concurrently back in the 40s and 50s. But it was a huge decade for smokers and an even better decade for the big tobacco companies, uh, for the babies in utero, not so much, but there are several ads here that point to doctors saying that it's okay to smoke while pregnant. There's an ad here, for example, in 1954, she's pregnant and next to it, it says, quote, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? And it has a picture of a doctor smoking a cigarette, and it's camel. And then they have a picture of a woman smoking a cigarette on there as well. And when asked what cigarette they smoked, the answers came in by the thousands from general physicians, surgeons, and even nose and throat specialists too. And this is clearly in the ad. So it was a time to be alive for the big tobacco companies, but It just goes to show how we as a country got it wrong, but even more, our medical leaders and practitioners got it wrong as well. What does that remind you of? I won't uh, say anything, but yeah, Uh lots of similarities there. Yeah. And I think you have a couple, yeah, I think you have a couple of stories too, but the point of us going through these little stories and these blips in time is that we have to study the history to know where we went wrong so we don't make the same mistake. And now we can look at cigarettes and be like, you're crazy. We would never smoke while we're pregnant. But back then when the doctors were saying that it was okay, we trusted that. Right. And so like April was saying, you know, we don't want history to repeat itself. That would be foolish. So knowing that the evidence is constantly evolving, okay? Right. And we're, when, we, when we know better, we do better. Why are we just so quick to comply all, all the time with everything? Why are we not allowed to be inquisitive? Or why is that shamed, mm-hmm. right? You would think that if you look back in history, knowing that we've made a lot of mistakes, wouldn't it be natural that maybe some of the things we're told to do now, could they also be mistakes? Right. So I, I, I want to go into a few examples too, and I want to hear your thoughts. I wrote to myself in my notes, LOL, <laughs> at the Washington Post article from January oh. 13th of this year titled, Obesity Drugs for Kids, Why New Guidelines Make Sense. So I'm going to read you a, an excerpt from this article. Okay our favorite over here, the American Academy of Pediatrics latest comprehensive childhood obesity guidelines are welcome acknowledgement that the old approach of quote, watchful waiting or putting off intervention to see if a child will grow out of or overcome obesity too often doesn't work. The recommendations also underscore that obesity is not a question of willpower, but a health condition with complex biological, socioeconomic and environmental drivers that deserves comprehensive treatment and that behavioral and lifestyle changes alone do not work for everyone. To me, it just sounds like another plug for pharma, right? So instead of just stating the truth, which is obviously with better diet, eating a less quantity of food and moving your body, obviously we all know that doesn't matter if you're 300 pounds overweight or 30 pounds overweight, you will eventually lose weight. But no, let's just go straight to surgery for minors for obesity and drugs. Interesting. Yeah. And not just quantity of food, but quality of food. 
We'll yeah. talk about some of the uh, preservatives later in the episode in the vaccines, but talk about preservatives in our food, the overly processed foods that we're eating, freezer food all the time, fast food. Obesity is complex. We can eat right. better. We, we can, can exercise more. We and can get out in nature. Yeah, you, yes. can, you, you can't do it on a budget. It doesn't matter where you are. Sorry if that offends some people, but also not sorry. We we cannot be recommending bariatric surgery and drugs as the first line of defense for children 12 and older. No, but not the that first line. Me, yeah, that leads me into the next one, which I think you'll appreciate too. The, um, I said here, the Corrupt Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I, that word always tell me about me. it. Dietetics. Yeah. Dietetics. Let's get <laughs> like into a weird it. tongue twist. So let's get into it. So, um, if you just Google the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the Guardian, you will see the article that comes up. It's um, about the financial ties, processed food companies, and contributions. Okay, so the documents reveal that the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has a record of quid pro quos with a range of food giants owns stock in ultra processed food companies and has received wow. millions yeah and has received millions in contributions from producers of pop which is soda candy and processed foods linked to diabetes heart disease obesity and other health problems wow. additionally the academy accepted at least 15 million dollars from corporate and organizational contributors from 2011 to 2017 and over 4.5 million dollars in additional funding went to the academy's foundation get a load of this among the highest contributions came from companies such as nestle pepsico hershey uh, kellogg's general mills conagra the national dairy council and the baby uh, formula producer abbott no. nutrition so if that doesn't scream corruption to you, yeah, if, oh but if that doesn't God. scream corruption, that the, this academy that dictates our food pyramid for the entire nation and oh. is basically in charge of telling us how to eat and what to drink, and they're aligning themselves with soda companies, baby formula, Nestle, et cetera, what does that say about our values and our corruption, okay? If you are still asleep after listening to this, please wake up. I don't know how else to say it. Well, that's a great little, sorry, I'm going to get off track here for a second, but the new food pyramid, Mm -hmm. right? We saw this come out, what, a couple of weeks ago, which scores Mm -hmm. food. Okay. Let's, let's read it here. I'm, I've pulled up a source. The new Food Compass Nutrient Profiling System, developed by researchers at the Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy at Tufts University, incorporates cutting-edge science on how characteristics of more than 8,000 foods positively or negatively impact health. Food scoring from 100 to 70 are encouraged. Food scoring 69 to 31 can be eaten moderately. And then food scoring 30 to 1 should be minimized. So what's at the top versus what's at the bottom? So Okay. I know Lucky Charms ranked better than steak, which we can all laugh uh, at. We, what a clown world we live in. Okay. So watermelon, for example, has a score of 100. So you're like, okay, fruit is good. But also there's a lot of natural sugars in fruit. So we should not be eating that like crazy. And in fact, I had a craving during pregnancy for watermelon and my midwives were like, chill on the melon. So (laughs) then we have in the yellow, we have sweet potato fries and sweet potato chips. Why are we talking so much about sweet potato? I don't know. Lucky charms. Okay. Those are in the yellow. 
and grape juice, which is essentially high fructose corn syrup. And then the things that are to be minimized, egg, fried in butter, (laughs) cheddar cheese, and ground beef. Obviously, there's an agenda here. We know eggs are nature's perfect food, high in choline, high in B vitamins, high in so many micronutrients, healthy source of protein and fat. Um, So, and obviously we know that the quality of beef depends on, you know, is it um, farm raised, is it grass fed? But I would even argue that farm raised beef is better than a bowl of Lucky Charms if you had to choose. I think most logical, rational people, and in fact, I would argue most dietitians hopefully would agree. So it's really just the academy that sets these rules that um, is, is kind of backwards. So in bed, in bed with the manufacturers yeah. of these quote yeah. foods. Yeah. Well, well, April, when you're getting at least $15 million from these corporate and organizational contributors, I mean, wh- why wouldn't they be in bed with them? Right. Hershey, yeah. Kellogg, money talk. Shareholder primacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fun, fun okay. Time. So Obviously, we have a history and a present history of getting shit wrong. Okay, so let's get back on onto topic, which is about the childhood vaccine schedule. So obviously, you and I and most critical thinkers looking at history and looking at what's going on today are scratching our heads and thinking, hmm, can these agencies necessarily be trusted? Are there really a lack of conflicts of interest where these organizations have the best interest of the people at mind? No. So when we can't answer that with 100% confidence, it's no wonder that we start to become skeptical about the things that we're injecting into our brand new babies. So let's talk a little bit about the vaccine schedule and how it's changed from the 50s until now. Because what we hear a lot is, well, I was vaccinated and I turned out fine. And I have said those words. I have uttered those words to other people. Um, Okay. Right. So guilty as charged. But what was interesting and very eye-opening is when we looked at the history of how the schedule has changed, we went from three vaccines in the 40s to how how many did we get now as kids? Well, I, I believe that it's 72 shots that kids who follow the schedule by the CDC to a T will receive before the, they're 18 years old. 72. And by the way, I would not be surprised, like don't put it past me if that number increases by the time you all hear this episode. Sure, no joke. So in the 1940s, the only vaccines were smallpox, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, DTP. Okay. Okay. And I I do want to talk about this a little bit later. So just as a little reminder, When we talk about getting these vaccines for our kids, whether or not you choose to have all or some, please, for the love of God, know what's going into your baby. So when you're having the sheet in front of you saying DTP or DTAP or MMR, please know what those are, what the diseases are and and what the multivalent drugs are. Okay. Disclaimer. All right. So in the fifties, we then had smallpox, DTP and polio. But this was IPV. So we can talk about, if we want to get into the details of polio later, we can talk about how we really got this wrong by IPV versus OPV. In the 60s, we added MMR. So now we have smallpox, DTP, MMR, and polio, the OPV. In the 70s, smallpox was eradicated. So they no longer recommended it for use after 1972. 
So mm, now on the schedule is DTP, MMR, and polio. How nice. When something yeah. is gone, they're not pushing it anymore. How interesting. But I, but I bet they're also thinking to themselves, hmm, when something is gone, let's find something new to replace it with. Well, here's what, <laughs> here's what came a decade later in the 80s. <laughs> DTP, we go. MMR, which is measles, mumps, and rubella. We'll get into that one in specifics. Polio, the OPV. HIB, which is a bacteria causing meningitis, and hepatitis B. Insert controversy. Insert brand new public skepticism because of hep B. We'll get into that in a second. And then insert in 1986, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. We'll talk about that as well. Just stay tuned. And from there in the 90s, now we have DTP, MMR, DTAP, HIB, hep B, influenza, hep A, varicella, also known as chickenpox, rotavirus, pneumococcal vaccine, oral polio was discontinued, IPV came back, and meningococcal, this word always gets me, talk about it, meningococcal, yeah, there we go, (laughs) conjugate was added in the 2000s. So we took a quantum leap from the 90s into the 2000s, and now we know in the 2022, we have the vaccine schedule. There's over 72 shots as of recording this. So we jumped I'm, huge. Not to interrupt, I do want to interject something. And gosh, you know, I th- this is our podcast, right? So I'm not going to worry about self-censorship here. People are welcome to fast forward if, you know, there, there's any uh, issues. But I'm just going to say something. It's, it's totally observational. But it's something I've talked about with a lot of other moms and a lot of other individuals okay? is when we say like, well, I have the vaccines. I turned out fine. OK, sure. But do we really think our children are healthier nowadays because of all the shots they're getting? Because, mm. April, do you tell me this when you were in school? Do you recall? like people having peanut allergies and gluten intolerances, all kinds of tree nut and soy allergies. Do you recall autoimmune disorders being as normalized and common as they are now? No, not, not. So for example, in my classroom, I had in elementary school, one girl who was gluten intolerant one. Okay. And I'll also say this, not to shame children today, but nobody in my elementary school was obese. We just didn't see it. Or diabetic, definitely didn't see that. Or if it was diabetic, it was type one diabetes, not type two diabetes. It was very rare. I will tell you, I think it's important to mention, this is all related, by the way. We we do know that there's some strong ties to these autoimmune disorders and yes. allergies, right? So I, I know I can say that it has been written about and recorded. The very first time I knew of someone with a peanut allergy wasn't until I was 16 years old. So that would make Me it too. Oh, okay. That's, that's eerie, right? It's interesting. I mean, it, yeah, sure. It could be coincidence, but it was the five-year-old child of a teacher I had. And I remember being fascinated because all of a sudden in the school cafeteria, Area, they needed to have a separate um, food allergy table for all the kids with nut allergies. And her allergy Aww. was so severe. I know. And her allergy was so severe that like all the kids in class were instructed not to bring anything in with even like peanut oil as an ingredient. Um, let's say even if it's like in a snack, right? 
um, she could smell it almost across the room. Gosh, poor also, thing. Can you imagine sitting at a table just being kind of like separated from, oh, that's so sad. And, and, you know, April, I asked my mom who was born in 1965. So she grew up in New York City in the 70s. And I was like, can you think of a time where, you know, thinking back to the 70s and 80s, where there was anyone in your massive public school in New York City with thousands of people? Was there anyone with any food allergies or autoimmune disorders? And she said, no. And in fact, like it was pretty much unheard of. So the reason it's, yes, it's anecdotal. Yes, it's observational. I do find it interesting. Wouldn't you think that if there's this message of like more shots equals healthier, that we would be healthier as a nation, especially our kids? Why are we more allergic than ever to all these specific ingredients and foods? And why do we see all these autoimmune disorders? We're going to get into that because I have a study from a pediatrician over in Oregon. He did a meta-analysis of 21,000 patients and whether or not he was a vaccine-friendly doctor, okay? So he and did a meta And what does that mean, vaccine-friendly? Meaning if you as the parent choose not to vaccinate your child according to the schedule, whether you get some or none, that he's okay with that because he believes in fully informed consent and informed refusal. So he's not going to push it. He's not going to mandate it. He's not going to worry about making his bonus if he has a particular compliance percentage in his office to the vaccine schedule. <clears throat> so hmm. 20, 21,000 patients, he did meta-analysis to find of the children who were vaccinated and of the children who weren't, and an incidence of immune dis disorders, diabetes, uh, even pink eye, autism, ADHD, eczema. And we'll go through that whole study and I'll share it with our listeners as well because it's incredibly eye-opening. Again, not to no say that necessarily causation, but interesting right. correlation. So Agreed. Let's, let's get back into where I said in the 80s with this yeah. whole kind of skepticism. So what happened in the 80s? Well, hepatitis B was now on the schedule and that alerted and alarmed, I should say, many doctors, including Dr. Sears. <clears throat> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote just from his little preface in his book because that's what started to get him down this journey of looking into the vaccines because he admits as a pediatrician, Vaccines aren't things that you necessarily study. You just mm -hmm. know in school that, yeah, you have to recommend them because they did, they did good. So Dr. Sears wrote the book, the vaccine book. And here's what he says. About three years later, I'm done with my pediatric residency training at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and he's ready to join his dad's practice in Dana Point, California, because his dad was also a pediatrician, okay? One of the first conversations I had with Dr. Bill, father, was how ridiculous it was that the hepatitis B vaccine was on the recommended CDC schedule for all newborns. He'd be thinking the same thing and complained that several of his newborn patients had gotten fevers from the vaccine and had needed to be transferred to the intensive care unit to rule out infection. Many of his colleagues were also questioning this one vaccine. Why do babies on their very first day of life need a shot to protect them from sexually transmitted infections? So why did hepatitis B come on to the market 
when we when we talked about this already in I think our birth stories episode, I can't remember. But yeah. hepatitis B is ridiculous to be mandated. Let's, Why let's is it remind ridiculous? our listeners. I want to remind our listeners who maybe didn't get a chance to listen to our birth episode yet why it's ridiculous. So listeners, so you know, we're not just saying no for the sake of being non-compliant. We actually do have reasons behind this. There's there's a logic behind it. April, can you go into that? Yeah. So hepatitis B, which we talked about, that is sexually transmitted or by needles, right? Yep. Blood blood or fluid. So unless you have hepatitis B as a mom or your somebody in your close family has hepatitis B, there is no reason to vaccinate your child against hepatitis B because A, your baby's not going to be sexually active and B, they're not going to be rolling around with dirty needles. It's really ridiculous to enforce and mandate something that is only for a very select small population. Yeah, it's so, also ridiculous to make it routine when it doesn't apply to 99% of babies. So you have to ask yourself, do the benefits of this Hep B vaccine outweigh the benefits of just living a, a normal average life, right? Not rolling around in dirty needles, not sleeping around as a newborn and not getting the vaccine. So that that's an example of how you'd use critical thinking. Yeah, so not applicable. And so that's where in the 80s, think about kind of quote unquote conspiracy theorists or tinfoil hat. That's where this started to happen with regard to vaccine because the public was going, wait, what? Wait a second. Why is this on the schedule as a mandated thing and a routine thing for newborns, fresh out of the womb, brand new babies, day one newborns, which is crazy. So Ironically or coincidentally, however you want to look at it, in the late 80s is when the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act took place. What do you know about that? So I know that I I don't know as much as you know. I know that it benefits the vaccine manufacturers and not the people who are directly injured as a result of taking vaccines. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's a fund with a lot of money in it. I don't know the exact amount. Mm Um, yeah. where I believe they're doing these, uh, you know, backdoor payments. Um, yeah, let's talk to, about right? it. Let's, let's just let's, talk about it. <laughs> let's let our listeners know that this can be found at congress.gov. So you can just search on Google, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986. It's HR 5546 if you want to look it up. And you can you can look at the whole manuscript or transcript rather of uh this act. But essentially what happens is it establishes the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Plan as an alternative remedy to judicial action for specified vaccine-related injuries. Now, why would you need a fund and an act for vaccine injuries by the Senate Mm -hmm. if we don't have vaccine injuries? Right. Right. So, so wait. So no longer right can there. we. Yeah. Go ahead. So April, do you think it's kind of strange if a parent goes to a pediatrician's appointment for a quote well baby visit to get a shot, and they're like, "What are the potential side effects or risks?" And the doctor says, "None." Or you know, oh, just redness or swelling at the arm. Right. We hear that. Oh, just some soreness, some redness at the mm-hmm. site of injection. It should go away. Maybe you know, a they, fever. They might be sleepy. A fever. If there's a, a whole act and there's this fund, something's not lining up. That's kind of funny, right? 
Absolutely. And what I'm trying to say here is by this act and establishing this fund, this is the government understanding and acknowledging that there are vaccine related injuries, which is a huge sweeping movement. Okay. And that's where the public then becomes, we'll put another point in the score of public skepticism. So in 1986, Congress enacted the NCVIA, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, and established the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, VICP, in response to a destabilized vaccine market caused by manufacturer withdrawal due to increasing liability. So when this act came out, manufacturers were being held liable for these injuries and paying that out. So what happens? (laughs) Right. So what happens is these manufacturers are now pulling out saying, hey, the juice isn't worth the squeeze for us. Literally. So they established this fund as a way to pull the liability away from the manufacturers. And now it's paid out by the government. So this was a enacted i'm sure it was enacted with good faith to to ah, stabilize the I market <laughs> to ensure really? a sufficient production of vaccines right so with the ncvia no vaccine ma- manufacturer is liable for a vaccine related injury quote if the injury or death or death resulted from side effects that were unavoidable even though the vaccine was properly prepared and was accompanied by proper directions and warnings. So nobody was going to be held liable for these injuries. So now the system is built in such a way that the manufacturers are no longer liable. So what does that mean? They're also no longer incentivized to improve the vaccine safety because, hey, They're not on the hook anymore. They don't have to pay it out, right? Yeah, but also it probably means that pediatricians don't feel this pressure to really explain all the benefits that we'll talk about later, or the risks, sorry, not the benefits that you can find on these inserts. Because, I mean, who cares? But also who's going to take the time to read all those risks? It's a laundry list. Yeah, and let's go back to the 80s really quick. I'm still quoting this um, transcript. Hmm. From the act, okay. A vocal anti-vaccine movement still believes that vaccines, particularly the thimerosal (laughs) containing measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, causing autism despite the lack of medical evidence, likely due to the occurrence of the timing of the standard vaccine administration and the emergence of symptoms of autism. So this high correlation, that's what really sparked this whole thing. So I thought that was really interesting is like, hey, we're off the hook. So we no longer have to worry about how safe it is or if it causes death or causes injury because the government's going to pay for it. So fast forward. okay? in 1997, this fund paid out seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Holy shit. (laughs) By 2022. Guess how much it was. Um, A billion. $5 $5 billion have been paid wow. out. And approximately 60% of all the compensation awarded by this program comes as a result of a negotiated settlement between the parties. 
in which HHS has not concluded based on upon based upon review of the evidence that the vaccine caused the injury. But if you're going to settle, that means that you know this is a risky business. So let's just hush money, right? Five billion dollars worth of funds paid out to families of vaccine injured or killed children. And of course, this will never make it to mainstream news, no matter what side of the news you like to watch. But um, April, what what source do you have for this? So listeners know where you got this from. Yeah, so you can find this. I have a link to it, but it's in the HHS website. We'll figure out a way to share this. I really want to get our resources out to listeners in a clickable way so they can, we can. look at this. In um, the podcast also, episode. Yeah, if you just Google... Um, HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, you can look all into the injury compensation program. It talks about how to submit for things. So if you have had a vaccine injured child, um, it is a very difficult process, by the way. I mean, you have to, without a shadow of a doubt, to win these actual battles, you have to prove it. So a lot, unfortunately, that $5 billion, think about that as the tip of the iceberg. There's many, many, many that never got paid out because it is such a judicial nightmare. But there are instructions if you go to hrsa.gov slash vaccine compensation, you can find out all about how to apply Um, and find all of this. I'll say a couple other things to that note. April's right. It's very hard to prove because obviously anyone could just say, well, that's coincidental, right? Like you you regressed and you're no longer verbal or you seized purely as a coincidence, right? How can we prove it's because of the vaccine? Well, you take a perfectly healthy, normal person a few days or a week after they get a shot, nothing out of the ordinary happened to them aside from getting a vaccine. And now all of a sudden they're having seizures, right? Or encephalitis or, or they're dying. I mean, yes. right? correlation or causation, you, you tell me. But um, the other thing is this, just think about it. Even though there's $5 billion that was recently paid out to the vaccine injured, If you have a child who died as a result of a vaccine or is so severely injured that they're not going to ever make a comeback, does it matter if you even get a billion dollars? Is that ever going to make up for the fact that your child is no longer like your child or no longer here? I'd argue it wouldn't. Absolutely not. And you made a really great analogy uh, when we were talking offline a couple of days ago about insurance, hurricane insurance. Tell us that. I I think that was a good a little analogy. Well, you know, I'm in Florida. I know you used to be in Florida. And so everyone kind of knows it's the running joke that you need hurricane insurance for the most part. Um, and you just hope and pray that you'll be paid out if there's any damages to your home as a result of a hurricane. But I guess you could use this analogy for any insurance, car insurance, right? Insurance with anything that the insurance companies will look for almost any excuse to not give you the payouts that you deserve. And even if you're paid out by that insurance... What is the true cost to to you for losing your home? So think of that, but on steroids. And that's what it's like when you are submitting a claim for someone who's been vaccine injured. Good luck. Yeah. And so here's another little interesting fact about this um, compensation. 
program, mm. right? Because we're like, oh, it's government funded. So the government's got your back. They're paying out. And here's how, here's how it really looks, okay? And this is cited in Aviva Rahm's book on page 93, but you can Google this yourself. You can look at, um, I think there's an old report by Money that talks about this. But anyway, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program is administered by the federal government. But ironically, this program is financed by a tax placed on the sale of the vaccines included in the program. In other words, the recipient of the vaccine is paying for the vaccine injury insurance by paying higher prices for each mandatory vaccine received. And the CDC purchases and distributes more than half of the childhood vaccines administered in the U.S. I have a question, April. Do you think that even any doctors or nurses who are administering these shots, do you think that they're aware of that tax? Who knows? I don't I I don't know. I've never been a nurse. I've never gone through med school, but I doubt that this is a, a blip on the radar. If it is talked about, I bet it's just something that's breezed over quite quickly. Yeah, I had no idea. And I thought I, I really did my research, too. Um, so I would imagine mm-hmm. if you polled most people, they would have no idea that that's the case. Yeah. Talk about a captive market. Yep. Oh, that's for certain. So we've talked about vaccine injury. I also want to empower moms to make an informed choice, right? So here's where you can go to look at VAERS. So let's talk about VAERS for a second. Yeah. All right. Okay. So the the VAERS is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. So once this act was put in place and then the fund was established, they had to have a system of record for all of these incidents to prove that these injuries happened. So if you did not as a parent or have your doctor put in this injury into the system, you won't get compensated. So step number one, if you have a vaccine injured child is to self-report and you can self-report or you can report through your doctor. I would say as a mother, I'm not going to trust anybody to do what I would do. So I would go ahead and do it. So it's the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And you can find this by going to wonder. Wonder like, like the Wonder Years. W-O-N-D-E-R dot C-D-C dot gov. And maybe what we can do is provide a little reel or a video of how we can access it to show our listeners, Um, but there's a way to go in there and you can either self-report or you can just look at the history of injuries towards the vaccine. So you can drop down to, for example, MMR, hepatitis B, and you can see the event that was associated with that and how prevalent that event was. So anything else that is important for our listeners to know about VAERS? I did, a, I did a little TikTok series during COVID on this. Is it still out? Yes, the TikToks okay. are still up. However, yeah. it was taken down once and then it was prevented. It took like three days for it to upload and normally a video takes minutes. So I actually did a little TikTok on how to pull the VAERS data for COVID because I was mm. just curious. I was a curious mind, right? So I went in and I looked at, because at that point in time, I was almost convinced that I should just do it. Just do mm-hmm. it, April. Just comply. Get people. Get the monkey off your back. So I went in there to <laughs> get see the monkey off one, your back. 
You're killing me. <laughs> I went I went to no see which manufacturer was the safest because I would I had heard Moderna Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, but I had heard some shit about Johnson and Johnson about blood clots. So I was like, all right, between Pfizer and Moderna, which one should I get? So I went into theirs, I pulled COVID, I pulled by manufacturer, and then I saw a litany of adverse events. Boom, boom, boom. And I was like, okay, pause. I'm not gonna get it, change my mind again. But there is a TikTok on that. I don't know that there's anything else that we should really belabor on here other than the government knows that there is danger involved. There is a risk. So don't listen to your pediatrician if, like Kat said, they dismiss potential risk or they downplay it. There is risk. Otherwise, there wouldn't be this act and there wouldn't be a $5 billion fund out there. Yeah, Secondly, fact, there's a risk with everything. Exactly. Secondly, be autonomous and go look at this stuff for yourself. Okay. Don't just listen to anybody like us. Who's just telling you this stuff. Fact check it, go into VAERS, look for yourself, read these books, look for yourself, find the history of this act by yourself. If you want to, nothing that we're sharing with you today is not found on the internet by credible sources. Okay. So let's get into well, real, real quick before we move on. So since, you know, the TikTok reel could be taken down, how about this? If any listeners still have questions or need some guidance on how to access fairs, find us on Instagram. We're at moms off the record pod, P-O-D, short for podcast. Yes. Send us a DM and we can give you some pointers and guidance um, around navigating bears. Yeah, I could do like a screen share or a screen recording. We want to make sure that you can find this stuff because we want to empower moms. That's what this whole thing is all about. And by the so, way, if if after you look through everything on VAERS and you're, you're reading these inserts and you still feel like the better choice is to get the vaccine, then do it. We just want you to feel confident in your decision. So that's all. Now we can move on. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Because now we're going to get into some of the specifics, the ones that cause usually the most heartache from moms and the ones that I think are are most controversial on the schedule. Not all vaccines are created equal. We'll talk about that too. But let's get into, I want to talk about the ingredients. I want to talk about MMR and DTaP. I know those ones we have stuff prepared for. So let's get into that. Where do you want to start? Let's start with the ingredients because I do think that there's some parents out there who think that let's say if you get a polio vaccine, right, it's just going to be the type of polio virus and maybe saline solution injected in your body. So April, why don't you do an ingredient breakdown list for us? Yeah. Okay. In Dr. Sears book, the vaccine book on page 229, chapter 17 is all on vaccine ingredients. So he talks about human and animal tissues. He talks about aluminum. He talks about mercury, et cetera, et cetera. So unfortunately, your vaccine cannot be on the shelf for very long unless it has preservatives, right? So in order Just to- Just like with make, your lucky charms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What do we know to be known toxins or carcinogens in terms of ingestion? Well- Aluminum is probably not something you should eat. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I try not to even cook with it. We use parchment paper. Yeah. What about and mercury, April? Same. <laughs> mercury. Mercury is one where, as a pregnant woman, I was told, no sushi. You can't mm -hmm. eat sushi because mercury is dangerous. So then why is my brand new baby getting it? And mercury is also known as, I hate this word, thimerosal. It's been a hot topic around the year 2000s. 
doctors at the CDC and the FDA realized that the amount of mercury in the routine vaccine schedule exceeded known safety limits about 87 times what was known to be safe. Okay. By the end of 2002, two years later, it was removed from all vaccines except for some flu shots. Okay, so real quick, I want to stop you there. So for any listeners who might be like, okay, well, we're well past 2002, so I shouldn't be concerned about the other ingredients, right? No, 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 because you know what? It it was out there for two years. How many children got 87 times the amount of mercury that was known to be safe? Flag mm. number one. Flag number two is the manufacturer Merck, which is still out there. Who does Merck, uh, which, which COVID vaccine is Merck? I think it's Ooh. Moderna. Good question. Moderna. Mm. Mm. Okay. So here's a little bit of corruption for your morning. Merck knew about this mercury overdosing way back in 1991. And the resource page in this book is on 320 to cite that source. The paper showed a copy of an internal memo that one of Merck's research doctors sent to the president of the Merck's vaccine division. The memo clearly states the worry about mercury overload. Coincidence that their name is Merck, uh, JK. (laughs) What was done with that information back in 1991? We don't know, but it can't be good that it took them over a decade to finally pull the mercury out. So we knew about it in 2002, scratch that. We actually knew all the way back in 1991. So just, you know, for a moment, let's pause here. I think it's important to recognize just how long it takes for research to go into practice. And then even once you do know better from the research, how long it, how many people have already been impacted and continue to be impacted. And then there's the hypocrisy. Anyone who's pregnant knows that you're, if you have more of a mainstream doctor, you're told not to eat any sushi. And I will say that more holistic, holistically minded OBs, And midwives will be like, yeah, you know, you can have some in moderation, fine. But why are we normalizing the levels of mercury in vaccines, right? And of course, mainstream news doesn't report on this. It's it's a bad look. And you know what? The the vaccine that's still on the schedule that still has a large dose of mercury because they have admitted it. Flu shot. Oh, regular flu shot. So, so glad I never go ahead that. and get the flu. If you get the flu, you get the flu. You're going to be you're going to be fine in a couple of days. It's not worth rolling a dice on mercury. And you can find more information about this at the WorldMercuryProject.org. Is trying to eliminate mercury from all the vaccines worldwide and to seek accountability for that oversight back in 1991. So WorldMercuryProject.org. If you want to get involved on that, great resource. A couple more yucky things that you're going to find. I won't go through the whole thing, but I will list off a couple. Formaldehyde, okay? This is the shit that used to keep your frogs rock hard in biology class. Uh, <laughs> Not yeah, I hard. remember those days. Yeah. But smelly were, and preserved. <laughs> yeah, it was preserving frogs, cats, and whatever else you decided to dissect in biology class, okay? This is in there. It's listed by OSHA, Okay by the Environmental Protection Agency and by the Consumer Product Safety Commission and other agencies that formaldehyde is a known carcinogen. It can cause kidney damage and genetic damage. Genes, your baby's genes. You're throwing formaldehyde into your baby's genes. I don't think so. Not for me. Not for me. There's also um, polysorbate 80 and 20. 
There's MSG, which we know that it's it's mm-hmm. a monosodium glutamate. Glutamate it's in Chinese considered... takeout food often. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the soy sauce and stuff. Glutamate is considered an excitotoxin, which is a chemical that can affect how your brain functions. Okay. Mm. There's a laundry list. So go to page 233, chapter 17 of Dr. Sears vaccine book, and he'll go on a list of all of the chemical additives, including mercury, aluminum, these food dyes, et cetera, et cetera. And it will also tell you how much is in each shot on the vaccine schedule. So speaking of wonky ingredients, I want to cover something that was discussed in Dissolving Illusions about the polio vaccine. Mm, Yes. Should we get into OPV versus IPV? Yes. Um, so I have, the thing is the, the chapter on the polio vaccine in the book, Dissolving Illusions, which is a, a massive book. I just want to plug it for a second. I know we're not sponsored by them. Wish we were, <laughs> but um, <laughs> wish, wish we were. Uh, we ain't on nobody's radar. <laughs> no, we don't. Yeah. We're, we're just, you know, we're really under the radar here, just trying to do a good thing and, and spreading information. But, um, Please, before, this is all I'd ask, before you decide in any direction, just get some of these books, right? Get get Dr. Miller's book, get Dr. Sears' book, um, get Dissolving Illusions. The polio chapter was is way too long for us to discuss in depth, but I do want to highlight something. Why don't, do you want to get into IPV versus OPV first, and then I'll talk about the ingredients? Let's go, let's go with yours, because I think IPV and OPV, it's kind of old news, it's just okay. another tick in the box of skepticism of how we got it wrong for decades and then we fixed yeah. our problem. So essentially what happened, vaccine-associated paralytic poliomyelitis was an adverse event to OPV, which was made with a live attenuated polio virus. So it caused more cases of paralytic polio. So then the CDC changed it to the IPV, and it was two doses of IPV followed by OPV. And then they later changed that to just IPV exclusively. Um, but yeah. we don't need to belabor it. Go ahead and go into to what you were going to talk about. So if you have Dissolving Illusions, it's going to be on page 279. Um, and the chapter is Monkey Virus Contamination. So I'm going to quote it here. Vaccines manufactured using monkey kidneys up into the 1980s have been definitively noted to contain a carcinogenic, meaning cancer-causing, monker, mo- monkey, monkey virus <laughs> that some medical researchers believe can result in cancer and a portion of the millions, millions who were given them. Simian virus number 40, SV40, is a monkey virus. That has been found in several types of human cancers, including lung mesotheliomas, several types of brain tumors, and bone, breast, colon, and kidney tumors. Unfortunately, the controversy... Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything under the sun. Unfortunately, the controversy over the percentage of tumor specimens containing SV40 DNA and proteins has paralyzed the research field, lo and behold, because of financial and political conflicts of interest. Wow, shocker. The research necessary to firmly validate the vaccine virus association will probably never be done. And it goes on to say, certain scientists who have had careers in polio and SV40 research know firsthand that inconvenient scientific truths can be abrogated by industry and politics. 
two yes. of the world's, right, which we see time and time again, two of the world's most respected scientists in the SV40 realm, who are Dr. Harvey Pass, P-A-S-S, and Dr. Michelle Carbone, commented on how science was censored. And I, I want to quote them here. Page 281, monkeys are still used in polio vaccine production today. According to Stanley Kopp's allegations, SV40 was and is still a potential risk in both the OPV and the inactivated polio vaccine, which is the IPV. The mm -hmm. IPV used in the developed world is still treated with, you talked about this earlier, April, formaldehyde. But yep. SV40 has been known since 1961 to survive formaldehyde beyond the usual 12-day minimum. Vaccine mm. manufacturers today cite a minimum of 12 days of formaldehyde treatment. So April, what did you take away from all that? Terrifying. Okay, why? Why? Why are we risking it? To me, and we're going to get into this because polio is one of those things and Dissolving Illusions talks about this, has been wildly eradicated long before the vaccine ever came onto the market due to just improved hygiene standards. Okay? Yes. So why are we risking the polio vaccine with the monkey virus and potential breast cancer and all of that jazz? Why? Yeah. Okay. I want to speak to that really quickly because all of this mm -hmm. is relevant. So yes. continuing with polio. Okay. So today, India, the country India is told that paralytic polio virus infections are a result of poor societal hygiene. You mentioned hygiene earlier. Right. So such doublespeak demonstrates how the tenet changes to accommodate the vaccine agenda and deny the true causes of par paralysis. As mm -hmm. of today, no programs have been funded to investigate or validate the scientific findings that implicate associations between chemicals like DDT and arsenic and the syndrome of poliomyelitis. Instead, the world is reliant upon blemished vintage research that was funded oh. by the major me, uh, media, or yeah, media political, so medical political powers of the first half of the 20th century. Um, and I, one last thing on polio the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis was overseen by the major medical monopoly, the Rockefeller Institute. Vaccination oh. continues as the sole intervention for the perceived problem of poliomyelitis in India and other, un, um, other underdeveloped countries, even in the face of vaccine-induced paralysis. Oh my God. Vaccine virus mutations and obvious failures. When vaccine programs don't live up to their promises, the blame is always placed on the unvaccinated. This is yes. what the book says before COVID, okay? Or <laughs> a new angle is drawn to the tune of, quote, five vaccines per child may not be enough. Correct. By, by slate of hand, changing the diagnosis of old-time polio to AFP, like Peter, any ongoing paralysis will be covered while the dimes continue to roll in. April, what does that remind you of? Oh my God. It's like COVID all over again. This is the new age. This is the new age polio because look here. Well, it's far less dangerous, but back in the day, 
when we were rolling out the vaccines for COVID. We have 100% efficacy for those who are vaccinated. It stops the transmission. You cannot hurt your neighbor if you get vaccinated. And then it was like, ooh, the efficacy waned and waned. Oh, just kidding. You're going to need a booster. What, how many boosters are we on now? Four, five, ongoing? I can't keep up. Who I knows? cannot keep up. And, you know, I just want to say this, too, because it might sound to you like, oh, girls, they got their tin hats on. They're crazy. (laughs) This monkey business, literally. But I want you to know that you can find this on the FDA's website. Okay, I've got a list here of vaccine excipient and media summary. Okay, and it's got all of the excipients, which include preservatives, adjuvants, stabilizers, cell culture materials inactivating ingredients and antibiotics, a list for every single vaccine and what it contains. And all of this was found on the FDA. So this is hiding in plain sight. Okay. And I can definitely confirm that polio IPV IPOL does have calf bovine serum. It also has Vero cells, which are a continuous line of monkey kidney cells. This is clearly on the FDA website. This is not some woo-woo kind of, you know, what is it, Snopes or, you know, Epoch. (laughs) This isn't just some like right-leaning thing. This is on the FDA's website because it has to be, okay? Right. And there's a whole bunch. We're going to get into MMR here in a minute and DTAP, and it has a list of everything that's in it. So if you want a copy of this, Hit us in the DMs and we will send it to you directly. Yep. At Moms Off the Record Pod on Instagram, DM us with any questions. We're happy to remind you of our sources. And so, look, if you're a listener out there is thinking to yourself, okay, I still do not trust the people behind these books. I get it. They're doctors, but they must not be like good doctors or reputable doctors. I just trust the FDA and the CDC. Well, then going back to what April said, this is on the FDA. Yeah, We are just the conveyors of information here. And I think you made a great point too, when we talk about polio being mostly gone, we need to talk and we talk about, you know, chicken pox, for example, that's on the the childhood schedule. I had chicken pox as a child. Did you? Yes, I had it in 1995. And look, we're here. We're alive. We didn't get the chicken pox vaccine. We're thriving. We, yeah. we survived to tell you our story. Amazing, I can right? remember all of my siblings, my siblings and I, the, the older of us are all 18 months apart. I've got an older brother, older sister. And I remember when we all got chicken pox at the same time and my mom put us in an oatmeal bath all together. Yes. And it was yes. fine. It was itchy. It was uncomfortable, but you get over it. And then guess what? You have immunity for life. Yeah, with the no, with the var- yeah the varicella the chickenpox vaccine wanes over time, so you have a more likelihood. Yeah, you won't get it as a child. You're going to get it into adulthood, and it's actually more dangerous, especially for women, to get it in adulthood because it f- with your fertility. And we can yeah, get into that, that is too. Very interesting. But I want us to talk about the statistical risk of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about the risk of the actual preventable disease so we can have a weighed, balanced, informed decision on, okay, line by line, let's go through this CDC schedule and let's weigh the risk of insert disease versus the risk of potential adverse effects from the uh, vaccine. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. All right. So in Dr. Sears' book, and by the way, his book and, and Aviva's too, I like the way they're written because it's not to say don't get it or do get it. It's 
here's the pros, here's the cons, here's the alternatives. You make the yes. choice. Okay. And actually I found my notes, so I do want to talk about it. <laughs> okay. We are only getting started. This is only part one. We will have part two released tomorrow. If you're intrigued and you're enjoying what you're hearing, be sure to listen to part two. We're going to get into uh, MMR as an example, vaccine where we explore. We'll talk through multivalent drugs. We'll help you understand the difference between artificial and natural immunity. We'll go through a couple of studies. We'll talk through research bias and conflicts of interest. We will end on tips for moms so or parents, questions to ask your provider. We'll take a look at the U.S. versus Sweden and take a peek at their schedule. We will talk through how to ease the immunization conversation with your pediatrician. We'll talk through what informed consent sounds like and prep you for that. We will end on tips if you decide to vaccinate your child, helping you find a vaccine-friendly pediatrician in your area, and exploring exemptions. So if you've enjoyed part one, be sure to check out part two tomorrow. Thanks again for your support.